<clears throat> good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see all you guys. Um, some of you I haven't seen in a little while, so it's really good to see you. I uh, hope you're all doing well. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we want to welcome you to Zoe Church. And I'd like to invite you, all of you, if you have your Bible, to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2. Well, this is a pretty fancy pulpit here. Never had anything uh, like this in five years, so... Not even sure where to put my Bible on this exactly, um, but uh, it's definitely an upgrade. I don't know if you remember that little wooden pulpit right over here, um, but now it's in the center. All right, so that's pretty cool. First uh, Samuel 2, we're continuing our series through First Samuel. We've called this series After God's Own Heart, and last week Pastor Eric preached on the first part of First Samuel 2 on Hannah's uh, song or prayer. Today we're looking at the rest of the chapter, 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 36. Uh, and before we get into it, I just want to preface uh, this, this passage, this text, by saying that I've called this sermon, It's All About Choices, and I've actually, uh, usually I title the sermon, but I never say it. Uh, you'd have to look like on your notes or something. Um, but I called it, It's All About Choices, and yet if we go through it just on a surface glance, and we're going to read it in a second, you're going to see that it's actually all about judgment. Okay, this is a text that's about judgment. If you're new, welcome again. Um, but this text, I, I would say like this sermon, this kind of message is really kind of one of those shrink your church sermons. You know, like you have like grow your church ones where you talk about like your potential and how great you're going to be. And then you have shrink your church ones where you talk about how God is holy and he has judgment for us as his church. So let me just say that this is not a passage that goes down easily, and I hope you'll be prepared as we get into it. But I am convinced, whether or not we are prepared, that like it or not, what's in this text is something that we really need to hear as Christians. If you're not a Christian, uh, you can see this is directed more toward the people of God, so you can be a witness to what's going down today. But as Christians, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus— this text is for you, and this text is pretty, pretty difficult. It's pretty hard. But let's get into it. I'll, I'll let you see for yourself. Let me read, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, you would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Verse 17. Thus, the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe. And take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah 
and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every uh, offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you uh, whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest." He shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Let's pray. God, we come before you this afternoon come before a difficult text in your word. God, a text that points us to look at ourselves, a text that is a mirror that if we look into it, reveals our own sin, our own corruption, the ways that we have fallen short, the ways that we have stewarded what you've given us as your people wrongly and poorly. God, I think who is sufficient to teach a text like this, God? And so, God, I pray that you would speak through your word, that you would use me during this time. You know how I fall short of what you've called me to do. God, I pray that you would speak to your church gathered here today. You know that we fall short. But, God, as we come before your word, as we seek to be humble, I pray, God, that by your grace, we would recognize that even if this is hard, even if this is part of your discipline on us, that it's all grace. That you've given us a chance to repent, an opportunity to change and to grow. So God, even as this is hard, I pray, God, for ears 
open ears to hear. And I pray, God, for soft hearts to receive what this word has for us. And I, and I pray, God, that you would give us ready hands, that we might apply what we take out of this, that we might live differently in light of what your word reveals. God, only you can do this. God, if this time is about you. God, may you do your work in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The great American thinker, Uncle Ben, once said, with great power comes what? Great responsibility. You know, Uncle Ben, he's America's uncle. I don't even know what his last name is, actually. It's something. Maybe it's Parker? I don't think so. Um, You could tell me later. If you have no idea who Uncle Ben is, then that's interesting. We should talk later about uh, the time travel machine you took uh, to get here. I'm a little surprised. Um, But I understand not everyone is into Spider-Man, and that's who Uncle Ben is. Uncle Ben is Peter Parker, Spider-Man's uncle. And if you watch any of the million movies that have come out or read the comic books, you've heard this saying before. It's part of popular culture. With great power comes great responsibility. Now, if you don't know the story, before Spider-Man was Spider-Man, he was just a kid. He was a high schooler named Peter. He was kind of nerdy. He was pretty weak. And then one day he gets bit by a radioactive spider. Hopefully you guys know this, um, but I'll just tell you the story anyway. He gets bit by a radioactive spider and he develops superpowers, right? He's super strong. He gets agility. He has like the powers of a spider, whatever that means. Now, normally when people in comic books get superpowers, they decide that they're going to make a costume and they're going to fight crime selflessly for the rest of their lives. But Peter Parker was a little bit more realistic. Peter decides that he's going to use his powers for himself. He's going to use his powers to become a celebrity. And he goes on TV, he wears a mask so no one knows who he is. I think it's like pro wrestling or something. And he wants to become famous. He did, he does, He decides... Uh, consciously not to use his powers to become a hero. In fact, after his first mass performance on screen, he allows a burglar to run right past him, and he says, it's not my problem. This isn't for me. But then, and you know the story, a few days later, his Uncle Ben, who had told him, with great power comes great responsibility, is tragically murdered And Peter, he's heartbroken. He decides to get revenge. He tracks down who this murderer is with his powers, only to discover to his horror that this murderer was actually the burglar that he had let go a few days before. All right, shall we close in prayer? You guys blessed by that word? I know you're probably wondering why. Right? Why are you bringing up this tired quote and this tired story? What's next? Right? Like an illustration from the Matrix. We're going to talk about something like that. One of those old pastor tricks. The reason I bring this up is twofold. One, it's a simple story that illustrates the principle that our choices have consequences. That's why all these pastors, all these youth pastors especially, love using Uncle Ben in their sermons. But two, the quote, the quote of Uncle Ben, it's a good one because it actually reflects an idea that the Bible talked about thousands of years before Stanley or whoever came up with Spider-Man, to whom much is given, much will be required. And these two ideas are in this passage, that our choices, the choices that we make every day, they have consequences down the road. And as I said, this passage is about judgment. 
Even though we make choices every day, all of us make choices. People who don't know God make choices. The fact of the matter is, the people who know God best, or should know God best, the priests, the people of Israel, are for our purposes, us. We will be held at a higher standard for what we know. The choices we make carry extra weight because of what God has given us. This text is a memo, an inspired memo. It says, note, God holds people accountable for every decision that they make. So as we get into this text, it's an interesting text. At first, you might not think it has a lot to do with us. At most, maybe it has to do with me and Eric and James as pastors, as spiritual leaders. But what we see here is the house of Eli being judged for being poor spiritual leaders in Israel. We see Eli's sons and their failures. We see Eli's father, I mean, Eli as their father and his failures and his failures as being the high priest of Israel. But really, as we look at this text as a whole, what we see is that what Eli's house reaps here is a direct result of what they sowed and sowed for years and years before. You see, sometimes we don't make that connection. We focus on the big things, the big moments. But a lot of times, those big moments, they were built up to. It was little decisions, little choices that we made, little choices of compromise, or not dealing with this, or choosing this over that, that lead us down that path. We don't see that the little choices we make today might have big consequences tomorrow, or next year, or 50 years from now, or even unto eternity. So let's get into it. We're going to look at this text under three headings, the corruption, the correction, and the condemnation. Three C's for you guys. First, the corruption, the corruption which teaches us to see that our choices reveal our hearts. Simple lesson. Hard lesson, but simple lesson. The corruption teaches us to see that our choices reveal our hearts. Now, we're in a story. Okay, 1 Samuel is a story. 2 Samuel is a story. That's why people love these books, some of the best stories in Scripture. Eric was talking about it. So far in 1 Samuel, the main characters have been introduced to us. Hannah, right? Elkanah, her husband, Penina, the other wife, Samuel to a lesser extent. It's about this family. But now the story shifts. The camera shifts to a different character, Eli and his family. Now, Eli has shown up a little bit. He's kind of made a cameo in chapter 1. But now he and his family take center stage. Elkanah and Hannah, they drop off their son Samuel to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. And Eli now is going to raise him as a surrogate father, basically, an adopted father. Samuel, at three years old, maybe four years old, he's just a little kid, is going to be raised by this old priest, Eli. Verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. So you might be wondering, at the end of last week's passage, what kind of situation is Eli, I mean, uh, is Samuel getting himself into with Eli? Okay, what, what are Hannah and Elkanah doing, dropping him off with Eli? Is he going to be a good father? Is he, he going to give them some kind of, give him some special kind of education or raise him up in a better way because he's the high priest of Israel? Well, if you look at the next verse, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. 
I mean, maybe Eli has grown since then. But what the text is pointing us to is that Eli has not done a great job in raising his own kids. So you've got to consider the placement of this verse. We just heard Hannah's song, right, talking about all these different things. But if you look at verse 1, enemies. Verse 9, the wicked. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord and how God will judge the ends of the earth. You're wondering, who are these enemies? And if you've been reading through the Bible, if you read through Judges, if you read through the Old Testament, you know that there are enemies all around Israel. There are the Canaanites who are still in the land. And right now, there is an enemy that is looming on the horizon that has been there, that has been oppressing them, the arch enemies of Israel for a long time, the Philistines. They began to oppress Israel in the days of the Judges. And if you've been reading through Judges, you know that Samson, this strong judge, right, who had long hair, he had fought off the Philistines pretty well. But even though he had won many battles, he had lost the war. He had killed many Philistines, and yet the Philistines were still around. In fact, we'll see just in the next couple of chapters how the Philistines show up, and they are very difficult to defeat. So, if you think about this text in context, if you're trying to think about what is Hannah getting at, she's talking about enemies, you're kind of set up to assume, okay, the enemies of Israel. But what does God do? He brings us to this little story of a family, a woman who wants a baby. She finally has a baby. She gives him up to be raised by this priest. And we find out that this priest and his family are terrible. They're corrupt. It talks about adversaries and enemies. But in the very next verse after the song, who does God focus on? Not the Philistine pagans that are outside of Israel coming in, but Israel's priests that are already inside the gate. See, before God deals with the external threat to Israel, God chooses to deal with the internal, the cancer of corruption at the heart of his own people. And this is how this passage starts. It's as 1 Peter 4.17 says, Judgment begins at the house of God. And this is why this text is so hard. I think it's not that hard for me to come up here and talk about all the sins that are out there and all the evil people, all the worldly people. A lot of pastors do it all the time. I think I've done it. But this text says, look in the mirror. Judgment begins at the household of God. So what was going on? What was so wrong with Eli's family? Why were they called worthless Well, the sons of Eli were priests at the tabernacle. Their father was the high priest, and they were supposed to assist with the sacrifices. And this is how the sacrifices worked. I mean, there were different sacrifices, but in general, what would happen was people would bring an animal to sacrifice. They would bring like a bull, you know, like an oxen. They would bring a lamb, maybe some birds, and they would bring it to sacrifice to God for their sins or for worship. And now, technically, what would happen is they would bring the animal, and the animal would be killed, and they would go through certain things. Um, But they would get, the family who brought the, the offering would get to eat most of that meat that was cooked on the fire, okay, or boiled or whatever went on. Okay, it was a special meal. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago when Hannah and Elkanah, they were able to eat that special meal with their family. But also, on top of that, okay, so you you burn the meat, right? You give the best to God. The family takes most of it. But the priest, 
it was kind of a good gig, right? It was kind of a blessed job because you actually got to take some of the meat too. Okay, so remember, right? Meat was very expensive. It was hard to come by. Most people didn't eat meat regularly, but the priests were always able to eat meat. So it was a big sacrifice, right? You lived in the tabernacle. You had to serve all the time, but you got something in return. At least that's, what, that's how it was supposed to work. But Eli and his sons, rather, they didn't really care about following protocol. They had their own custom, it says in verse 13. They would send their lackeys with these three-pronged forks, and while the sacrifice was going on, they would just stick the fork right in, and they would pull it out, and whatever the fork took, they would take for themselves. Now, before the fatty portions were roasted for God, the priest would say, give us some of that, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, or their, their uh, sidekicks, and people would try to resist. They say, wait, 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 let us give God his portion first. I mean, we traveled all the way here to offer the sacrifice. Just let us finish first. Then you can take whatever you want. You can take some of ours. They would say, no. Right, we're the priest. We're in charge. Unless you give us some of this meat, right now, we'll take it by force. Sacrifices were costly. People didn't want their hard-earned animal sacrifice to fund the Israelite version of Outback Steakhouse. But that's exactly what was going on in this text. They were just taking the meat that they wanted for themselves. They were bullies. It says in verse 16 that they would force people. So verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. Now before you read the rest of that verse, just think about it for a second. What was so great about this sin? Before you get spoon-fed this condemnation, this judgment about them, we know that it's bad, but think about why is it bad. Use your critical thinking skills for a second. Was it that they didn't obey the law? I think that that's kind of a reasonable theory. You see this in the Old Testament. People, they break the law of God and they lose their life because of it. Sometimes God makes an example of people and he says, if you break the law, then you're going to die, just like I said. So if you remember Numbers 15, right, you guys, I know you guys all remember Numbers 15, right? It's your favorite book, favorite chapter. I didn't even remember. I'm just kidding. I had to look it up myself. But it's a story about a guy who is gathering sticks on the Sabbath and they find him gathering sticks. That's all he's doing. But then in the law, it says that if you work on the Sabbath, you deserve to die. And they make an example of this guy in Numbers 15. They stone this guy for gathering sticks on Saturday. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes God shows us the seriousness of breaking his law by punishing people for it. But that's not primarily what's in view here, even though those guys don't care about the protocol. Is it that they bullied people? Was it that they treated the people they were called to serve poorly? God does not look kindly upon people oppressing other people, especially religious leaders. But that's not primarily in view here either. See, if you read the rest of verse 17, it says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for or because the men, what? They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. See, in other words, these worthless guys, okay, the sin that made them worthless in the eyes of the Lord, it was that God to them was worthless. You could put it this way. What made them worthless in God's eyes was that God was worthless in their eyes. Now, you might ask, how were they treating the offering as worthless? Okay, what was really so bad? It could have been worse, right? At least they were doing it. 
You know, at least they were doing some sacrifice. Some of the meat was going to God. And really, if you're thinking theologically and biblically, you know God doesn't need that meat. Right? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't eat. God needs nothing. So what is the big deal about this? Well, it reminds me of this story that my friend said once. Uh, he was, uh, he's a Christian. He's a pastor now actually, but he was reaching out to one of his friends who wasn't a Christian, okay? He was trying to share the gospel with him, uh, trying to teach him about God, and, you know, just trying to get him, you know, saved, basically. And he would invite him to church all the time. And then one day, his friend actually went to church. Okay, I forget all the details. I forget if they went together or if his friend just surprised him and just showed up or whatever. But his friend went to church, and then afterwards, they talked about it. And my friend was pumped, right? He's like, oh, you went to church? I've been trying to get you to church for like months. This is awesome. But his friend, the non-Christian guy, afterwards said, okay, I went to church, and I have a question for you. Is this even real? I mean, do you guys actually believe like what you're saying? Because you said, I went there, and you're talking, and like, the guys are talking about like the word of God, and we're singing to like God who is in this place. And I look around, and people are sleeping during the message. People are checking their phones during worship. People are not paying attention at all to the very word of God. Come on, dude, I'm supposed to give my life to this? Now, my friend did say eventually that guy did become a Christian, so praise God, happy ending. But church was actually a stumbling block for this guy. See, the thing is, how we choose to treat the things of God, worship, the word, etc., etc., how we choose to, to treat these things reveals what we actually think about God himself. That's why it's so important. It's not just about meat. It's not about protocol. It's not about measuring out the right amount of ounces. It's about your attitude toward God. And who he is. And it's bad enough when our non-Christian friends see us for who we are and how much we care or don't care. But really what this text is getting us to is to the next level. What about what God sees? What does God see when he sees us coming before him as his people? I mean, does he see us falling asleep? Does he see us zoning out, checking our phones? What about nighttime, okay? It doesn't have to be in public worship. What about nighttime when you haven't prayed all day and you decide, I'm going to pray to the living God of the universe right now who has graciously opened up a way for me to talk to him by the blood of his son, and I wait till five seconds before I'm about to fall asleep. And then I do. Like I preach to myself, okay, maybe this is you. I know that this is me, and that's why part of me didn't even want to preach this. I was like, James should preach this one. What about when he sees that we put things like God first on our social media? You think he's like, that's right, right? You you preach it with your mouth and you live it with your life. If there's a difference, how do you think God feels about that? Leviticus 3.16, it says that all fat is the Lord's. For some reason, it's not as popular as John 3.16. I don't know why. Um, It's a good verse, But I hope the significance of this verse for this passage, at least, is becoming more apparent. See, God was saying in his law that he deserves the best. Now, you might be saying, I don't eat fat, right? I'm not into, like, the best meat is the most marbled meat, okay? I think that that's generally accepted. That's how meat is graded even today. 
right? Like the leanest meat sometimes is not the best, okay? The best meat is the most marbled. If we were to, to translate this into meat speak today in America, the prime cut, right? The prime cut, the best one is God's cut. It's not because God eats, it's because God is God and he's worthy of the best. See, verse 12 tells us that the sons of Eli not only were worthless, but they did not know God. And this is scary because they were so close to him. They knew about him. Their whole lives had been in the tabernacle. They probably knew more of the Torah than most Israelites at this time, but they didn't know God. Deep down in their hearts, there was no relationship. There was no acknowledgement that God was real, that he was near, that he was God and they were not. And it showed in every cookout, in every jab of the fork, in every threat of a worshiper, every time they chose themselves and what they wanted over God and what he deserved. See, it's possible to technically believe in God and yet to live like he doesn't exist. It's possible to not be an atheist, to fight atheists with your mind and yet with your choices. You choose, you decide, you live just like any atheist would. What do I want to do today? So ask yourself, what do your choices reveal? Just ask yourself, what, what do my choices reveal? Are my choices different than the person who doesn't know God? As we're going to see throughout 1 Samuel, the book likes to make comparisons. It likes to contrast characters, to highlight different virtues and different vices. We'll really see this when we get to Saul and David, how they're different, how their differences highlight what God actually likes and what God despises. But here, for now, we see a contrast, a small contrast maybe, but a contrast between the house of Eli and the house of Elkanah, verse 18. I want to show you, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. I always thought that that was kind of cute, right? Like, just a little Samuel, and she would bring, like, a little robe every year. If you, can, if you have little kids, I mean, this is a little kid, and she would, you know, like, crochet or whatever, like this little ephod, and bring it, and then he would put it on, and he would serve the Lord. What's the contrast here? What's the contrast? Well, what did Hannah and Elkanah's choice reveal about their hearts? That's the question. You might be asking, what choice? The choice is right here. The choice is the big choice. The choice is they dropped off their kid to serve the Lord for all of his life. Hannah had no kids. I'm not going to rehash the sermon I preached two weeks ago, but she had no kids. It was the biggest source of pain in her life. Finally, God gives her one, and she gives him right back to him. In service, forever, she says. She sees him one time a year, and when she does, she brings him a little robe so that he can serve God. Giving Samuel up was probably the hardest choice that she ever had to make. Let's just be real. But that's why the message that her choice preaches is so clear. To Hannah, God was first. God was first. I mean, 
Sometimes people point out, they say, well, she had other kids. Okay, if you've ever lost a kid, you know that having more kids doesn't just replace that kid and you don't care about that kid anymore. Plus, these kids happened later. There was no guarantee she would ever have kids again. She gave up Samuel right away. From conception, she had decided that Samuel was the Lord's. And that's why the contrast is so stark. A woman is willing to give up her everything to God. Two sons are willing to take whatever they want from him. This leads to the second point. So we looked at the corruption, right? And this should challenge us to think a little bit more deeply about our choices. This next point, the correction, should push us even further. It might be easy to think about some of the big choices. Okay, would I, you know, if, if there was persecution and someone held a gun to my head and said, do you believe in God? Hopefully I would say yes. That rarely ever happens. Okay, even in oppressive countries. Most of the time, it's the little choices every day that determine whether or not we are faithful to him or not. The correction tells us that when it comes to real life, it's the little choices oftentimes that are the most important. Verse 22, now Eli was very old. He's an old guy. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay, stop there. Pay attention real quick to how the narrator is telling this story. What jumps out right away is the extent and depth of their sin. This is totally corrupt. It's not just that they're messing around with a sacrifice. I mean, there is rampant sexual immorality going on in the tabernacle. They are sleeping with the women who serve there. Now, okay, you might say it takes two to tango. That could be true. But if you look at how the sons of Eli are portrayed, these guys are guys who take things by force. That's who they are. They do whatever they want. And when they are called out, they are called out for what they do. So this isn't a situation at the least. It's not a situation where they're mostly godly guys doing their best, just regular humans like us, and there are these seductive, like, harlots at the tabernacle tempting them. That's not the picture at all. These are guys who do whatever they want. If you look again, it says, Eli was hearing all that his sons were doing, not in Israel. Do you see that? But to all Israel. Now pay attention to something else for a moment. Notice all the time language. Okay, there's kind of a time thing going on. Eli was what? He was very old. Did he just hear about his sons once and then he jumps in on the action right away? Oh, I had no idea. Okay, thanks for telling me. I'm going to deal with it. No, he kept hearing all that his sons were doing. This is something that's ongoing. It was something that kept coming up over time. See, when you read the text carefully, think about what picture the Bible is painting. Eli has been given many chances over the years to confront his kids over their sin, to do the right thing. See, if Eli is old and his sons are called worthless men, not boys, it implies they've been with him for decades, decades. And you could say they're, they're adults. It's not his responsibility. When they were kids, as their father, he had authority over them. But as the high priest, even to adulthood, he still has authority over them as the priests who serve underneath him. Okay, maybe he can't tell them everything to do as their father, their adults, but he can't say as the high priest, no more of this. You can't serve anymore. But what has Eli been doing all this time? I mean, surely he saw some signs. Surely he heard some people say, hey, your sons are kind of creeping on these girls over here. 
Maybe he noticed that they kind of don't care about doing the sacrifices when they're doing it. Whatever had been going on, he had done nothing. Now, you might say, you know, it's hard, you know. Maybe he's just a dense guy. You know, maybe they, they did it in secret. Or maybe he's just like a really gracious guy. It says that they kept on telling him. The people are crying out to Eli to do something. So verse 23, finally, he does something. And his action here, I think, only serves to highlight his lack of action before. I call this a weak correction. I mean, if you think about what they've been doing, what their responsibility is, who it is they serve, listen to what Eli says. He says, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Basically, he's like, okay, family meeting, guys, you know, I'm sorry to bother you, but what's going on? It's not good. It's not good. It's just not that good. Eli has the authority to remove them, to at least remove them temporarily, at least, to say, okay, take a break. I'm going to do the sacrifices now. As a high priest, Eli is in charge, and not to mention, again, he's their father. Now, Okay, going back to what I said earlier, maybe he is just a chill guy. That's what you're thinking. He's just gracious. Some people are gracious to a fault. They're patient. Maybe he had been praying. He didn't know what to say. Turn back with me a chapter to 1 Samuel 1. I want to show you something. When Hannah was really kind of in her darkest hour, and she was so like broken over not having a kid, it was just so hard, the pressure on her from Elkanah, from Penina, she's praying, she's pouring out her heart to God, she's moving her lips, but no sound is coming out, and Eli sees, verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. He makes a character assessment right away. Verse 14, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, Eli might have had bad eyesight. In fact, it says he does later. But he can see clear enough to watch this woman praying. He can see her mouth moving, assume she's drunk, and call her out loudly. Hey, put your wine away. That's inappropriate behavior for this place. Can you see the hypocrisy here? But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I haven't drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a what? Do you see that? As a worthless woman. As a worthless woman. Did you hear? Same word in Hebrew. The word worthless is belial. Okay, this actually becomes a proper noun later in kind of how the language developed. You can hear Paul talk about it. Even beyond that, uh, Belial becomes a name for Satan. Right here, it just means worthless. Okay, but what she literally says here is, don't regard me as a daughter of Belial, as a daughter of worthlessness. Something about how Eli talked to her. Do you see what I'm saying? Something about his tone, how direct he was in calling her out. She felt like he was calling her a worthless woman, a daughter of Belial. She says, no, that's not what's going on here. I'm actually just praying. He has no problem talking to a random woman this way who was praying. And yet when it comes to his sons, who actually are sons of Belial, he's so weak in his correction. Eli's not just a chill guy. He's not just gracious to a fault, at least not in general, because in chapter 1, you can flip back, but in chapter 1, Eli calls out Hannah, no problem. See, what Eli is doing, what Eli has been doing, is what Jesus warned about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. You might remember this text. 
Jesus said, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the, uh, the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay, oh, look, this woman seems drunk. I need to remove her because that might dishonor God. It's a speck. Eli chose to focus on the little things that were outside of his sphere of influence. He's just sitting around judging Hannah when he should have been busy with his own house. And listen, this is what we're all tempted to do. Why else would Jesus say it in the Sermon on the Mount? The specks in other people's eyes, something about them, they sparkle to us. Okay, we're attracted to them. It's hard work to look at the planks or the logs in our own. And yet we're all tempted to avoid our own sphere of responsibility, what God has given to us, distracting ourselves with other things. I don't know how many Christians there are who spend hours, for example, focusing on people who are struggling, strangers online. Right, there are some heretics out there who are sharing this on their GeoCities website. There are people who are sinning over here in this area, in this group, who are exposing corruption. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. There might actually be specks out there. But if your own kids are running wild, if there are sins in your heart that you're not repenting of yourself, if your own eyes are full of planks and logs, if there's a whole forest coming out of your head, what's going on? What's going on? It's not that Eli had no time to call out his sons. He wasn't too busy. It's not that Eli had no opportunity to correct them. He had every day many opportunities. He had their entire lives. He chose not to until it was too late. Because look at what it says in verse 25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Okay, this is really interesting that Eli would say this. Eli... He knows the stakes. That's what's so mind-blowing about this to me. He knows that their sin is ultimately against the Lord. He knows that his sons have got a first-class ticket to hell. He says, who's going to save you guys? Who's going to mediate for you? You sinned against the Lord. Eli knows. And yet he hasn't really called them out all these years. Even now, he's too scared to really come down hard, even though he knows that it's for their own good. Eli has chosen wrong. It says in verse 29 later that he had chosen to honor his sons above God. See, sometimes the worst thing that we could do for our kids is to make them too important. And the thing is, now it's too late. Their hearts are hardened. It says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Their hearts are hard. I mean, we see this throughout the scriptures. It's possible to get so deep into sin, just in, real, uh, in reality, realistically, that you'll never get out. You never will. Romans 1 talks about how people, right, they, they went after their depraved desire so much that God just gave them up to them. Or you look in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it talks about how you can sear your own conscience. You keep doing something that you know is wrong, eventually your conscience isn't going to work anymore. There's going to be so much spiritual scar tissue from searing it over and over and over again that it won't feel. The path toward big sin 
catastrophic sin is always taken one little step, one little choice at a time. The truth is, no one gets there overnight, but it's possible to get there. And when you think about this entire thing, just the story and how it's presented, Eli had these kids. They were born into his household. He is the high priest of Israel, and he allows them to get to this point to finally correct them when it's too late. How many opportunities do you think he had to say something? How many times did he see a little something that was a little off and he said, uh, you know what, you know, my, my sons, they're fine. You know, like, I, I don't want to, you know, turn them off to God by being, whatever he said, whatever justification came up in his own mind. How many choices? C.S. Lewis once said, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. It's a little wordy, but basically what C.S. Lewis is saying is that your choices today affect your choices tomorrow and the day after. Our choices beget choices beget choices. So little things can snowball. Little things can grow. Your little choice to text back today is what leads to a phone call later, which leads to a lunch that's definitely not a date. It's just a friend thing, which leads to more text, which leads to more phone calls and more lunches. And you know where that leads. Every choice is important for your life now, for your life later, for your life unto eternity. So the question is, what choices are you making? On the one hand, it can seem overwhelming, but on the other hand, really it's simple and it's small. When you have choices, every minute, every moment, every hour, every day, what choices are you making? With your kids, just to kind of keep it close to the text. What about in your marriage? What about at church? What about with your resources, your time? or your money, or your words? What choices are you making? This leads to the final point, the condemnation. The condemnation. See, the thing is, if we're not being faithful in our choices, it'll lead to something bad. Our, Our choices have consequences. Verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Again, a comparison, a contrast. And if you know your New Testament, this is how Jesus is described later when he's growing up. See, just like Jesus later, Samuel is being prepared to change the world in a sense. Samuel has a big part to play in God's plan for Israel and God's plan for redemption. Even he's the one who anoints David. But everything that's happening right now is happening in relative obscurity. And that's the interesting thing. It's not just the big moments of choice where you're either a hero or you fall. It's the little thing. Samuel is growing up every day, growing in stature and in favor with the Lord. No one knows everything's about to change, but God does. God is working through these little choices. God is sovereign. 
And this is where things get kind of confusing in this text, honestly. And I feel like we just got to talk about it real quick. Then we'll start wrapping it up. But if God has a plan, if God is sovereign, if he has decided, even in the past couple of verses, to put the sons of Eli to death, right? It's too late. God decided that they would die. That's why they don't listen. What do our choices really mean? Because I've been talking about choices. Do we even have choices? And this goes to the whole issue of free will. Does free will exist in a universe where God is totally in control? The answer, honestly, is pretty simple. Free will does exist. Okay, yes, God has free will. Yeah, that's probably not what you wanted to hear. I'm not trying to be facetious or maybe, okay, maybe a little bit. But this is how the Bible portrays God. Okay, this is where we start. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Okay, Psalm 115.3. God does whatever he wants. His will is totally unfettered, unbound. Nothing can stop him from doing what he wants to do. God is completely free. Now, underneath that, can we do what we want to do? The truth is, yes, to a certain extent. God has given us a will. We can do things that we actually want to do. But this is where things get sticky, and this is why people have gone back and forth on these issues for centuries. Here's the deal. Okay, I can't solve free will and all these things for you right now, and maybe I never can completely, but here's the deal. We can do what we want in that sense. We're free, but God is freer. We can never force him to do something he doesn't want to do because we want him to do it, right? Even if we go to Kroger with God and we want to get that thing and we're throwing a tantrum, God doesn't have to give in. Hey, God can do whatever he wants. See, the thing is, we're responsible for what we choose to do, but ultimately God is the one in charge. And the way it practically comes together is summed up in one word, stewardship. And that's where God goes in the final part of this passage. Because there are two truths that are intertwined in this text. One is that God is working his plan, and it doesn't matter what's going on, because Samuel is the one that's going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. But at the same time, Eli's house is responsible. Verse 27, a man of God shows up to speak God's word to Eli. Who is this man of God? Okay, where did he come from? We have no idea. The text doesn't say. We have to judge him based solely on whether or not his words come true. And we'll see later, but I'll just tell you now because it'll be a while. His words do come true. Okay, spoiler alert. But here's what he says in verses 27 through 29. He says that God says that he gave the priesthood to Eli and his house, okay, as a stewardship. God chose to bestow this responsibility. But he says that Eli has dropped the ball. God holds him responsible. Verse 29, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Did you pick it up? He says, why do you fatten yourselves? He's talking to Eli, not just the sons. It's not just Hophni and Phinehas who are fattened up on the best meat. Eli, I mean, just looking at him, looks pretty well fed himself. Not only has he not stopped his sons, he's profited from their sin. Okay, stewardship. So now God is going to take away what he has given. And the prophecy is very specific. The men of Eli's family will die early deaths, verse 31. In fact, all his descendants will eventually be killed by the sword with only one left to see and weep, verse 33. And Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day for their sin. And this happens just in a couple chapters. Why so harsh? 
It's like this guy shows up out of nowhere and just says, okay, everything's done. Your family's just going to die. I'm taking away the priesthood. But if you've been paying attention, if we've been paying attention, it's not just all of a sudden. This has been going on and going on for years and years and years. And see, their responsibility was great because what they were given was great. God is in control, but he chooses to give us a stewardship. And how we act, what we choose to do with it, God will hold us accountable. The greater the stewardship, the greater the accountability, and the greater condemnation if we fall. But again, it comes down to little choices. There are so many off-ramps for Eli and his kids to get off of this train of destruction. See, no one gets fat on one meal. You guys know this. Verse 35, God will raise up a new priest. It's not Samuel. Okay, that might be an easy thing to kind of go to. He's got the little, like, crocheted ephod. Samuel is not of the house of Aaron. He is a Levite. You can find that out in, in the book of Chronicles. But Samuel has a different path. Samuel is going to become the final judge. He makes his sons judges. We'll get to that. But he is the actual final judge. And he is the prophet that is going to lead the people to their king to Saul, and then to David. This priest will be a descendant of Aaron, a man named Zadok, and he will become the sole high priest in the days of Solomon when everything is super prosperous. So Eli's line, right, they're doing good now, but when things get super good in Israel, they're going to be left outside. Zadok is going to take over, and he and his family will serve the Lord's anointing. It's not going to happen for a long time, but it's going to happen. Eli's house will fall from being fat and rich and on top of the world to, uh, to beggars. And eventually, they'll just disappear entirely. God's plan, see, will continue on without Eli. And this is where this idea of free will and stuff comes full circle. Because here's what we do know. God doesn't need us. He gives us opportunities, countless opportunities. He gives us responsibility He gives us money and time and families and jobs and relationships and neighbors and positions of leadership and spiritual knowledge about who he is. Most of us here own multiple copies of the Bible, but he doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. If we don't worship, the stones will cry out. The choices we make, therefore, cannot and never can sink God's plan. It's impossible. However, the choices that we make can sink us. They can ruin us. They can ruin our families. They can ruin our lives. God will allow that to happen. No one's above his accountability. So, friend here, if you are on a bad path, if you've been making some bad choices, maybe you're rolling down the hill of some life-destroying sin, like a snowball, gaining speed, getting worse. Or maybe you're someone here who doesn't know God right? That hit you, right? Something about that. Verse 12, you're like, oh, I felt that. They didn't know God because you've been around church your whole life. You know the Bible pretty well. You sung songs, but in your heart, you know that it's never really been real for you. You don't know. You have no relationship, no connection with God. Maybe this this teaching about choices and about consequences and about judgment for sin, maybe talking about a one-way ticket to hell, maybe that kind of hit you. Wherever you are, whoever you are, either way, what I'm about to tell you is make the right choice now. Repent. Turn around. You know, the Apostle Paul said, 
speaking of the book of Numbers, actually, specifically, but about the Old Testament, that these things were written for us. These lessons were recorded. Eli's fall from grace was recorded so that we could look at it and learn and be convicted and go a different way. See, Eli asked, if one sins against God, who can mediate? It's a good question. And it's a question that we know the answer to. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He is the Lord's true and final anointed. He is actually the great high priest who always lives to intercede for sinners like us. If you've been making all the wrong choices by the grace of God, I urge you to turn around and make the right one. By God's grace, you can. You can go to Christ. God chose in love to send his son to be the propitiation for our sin, to be the one to bear our condemnation so that we could be forgiven, freed, and given new life. See, the promise of the gospel is that all of your bad choices don't have to be held against you because Christ can take it for you, the consequences. And he chooses sinners like me and you. So today, as Hebrews 3 says, if you hear his voice in his word, in this passage, don't harden your hearts. Turn to Christ. And we'll close here. I heard this story shared by a woman named Sarah. She grew up rich, and then when she was 12, they became poor, her family. And she was talking about it. Um, But it really came down to a choice. And the interesting thing is her dad would always say this. Her dad would say, it's all about choices, Sarah. To all the kids, there are four kids. He'd say, it's all about choices. Whatever you do, it's your choice. It's your responsibility. It's your fault. But the reason why they became poor is because their dad made a bad choice. They were super rich. Their dad was a lawyer. Their mom was the kind of woman who would go to the pool not to swim, but to show off her jewelry. They had all these Porsches. They lived in a house that Sarah said went on forever. Like in her memory, she feels like there was no end to their house. But then when Sarah was 12, their mom called a family meeting, and they never had meetings like this, and she was afraid it was a divorce. But actually for them who grew up with all of this wealth and privilege, it was worse. What happened was their dad, this lawyer, had been embezzling money. He had been placed in charge of this trust fund, and he had been cutting himself checks, and he was going to have to pay for what he did. He was going to have to turn himself in. And now, as they had this family meeting and their dad's crying, his bad choice, or really series of bad choices, was about to ruin everything they were used to in life. No more Porsches, no more uh, jewelry at the pool, no more house that goes on forever. And she said it was rough. Like, just overnight, everything changed. Her dad got disbarred. Right? Her mom, who had been, you know, so rich and just living this nice life, she had to go work multiple part-time jobs so that they could, you know, survive. They moved into a smaller house. All of Sarah's old friends were like, oh, your dad's that crooked lawyer. And all of this stuff, everything changed. But she said even though she never would have chosen that fate, it actually turned out to be the best thing that happened to them for their family. She said as time went on, they grew closer. Her mom became the selfless person. When she was really kind of a worldly person, she became selfless, started a nonprofit to help homeless people on the street. Her dad got kinder. And it wasn't until she was older and she kind of had perspective and she looked back, she asked her parents, okay, what exactly happened that night? Like, why, did he get caught or, or what happened? Turns out he didn't get caught. 
What happened was he was just living his life, cutting these checks, making all the wrong choices. But then his oldest daughter, her, his older daughter, uh, called him from college and said, Dad, I decided I want to be a lawyer just like you. And something about those words just like cut him to the heart. And he said, you know, I've been making all the wrong choices, but now I need to make the right one. So he chose to do it himself. See, it's all about choices. And, you know, when I look at Eli, and we'll close in just one second, sorry, but when I look at Eli, Eli was the worst dad ever. But we'll see in the next chapter that even though he wasn't the best, Eli does do some things right with Samuel. And God uses those good choices to bring about his purpose. And the thing is, you and I, maybe we have made all the wrong choices. Maybe we're making bad choices right now. Maybe you weren't aware of it, but now you're aware of the thousands of little choices, the thousands of little ways in which you go away from God instead of toward him every single day. Maybe you're hurting because you know that there are some big choices in your past that you can't get back. But here's the truth. You are given as a stewardship more choices starting right now. If you're alive, if you're here in this room, if you've heard this word and it's done something in your heart, God has chosen to give you the opportunity in his sovereignty to make better choices from here on out by his grace. Maybe it starts with going to Christ. Maybe it starts with the littlest thing that I don't even know about, but today is the day. So what's it going to be? What choices are you going to make? Because it's all about choices. Let's pray. God, we come before you. God, we recognize that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And yet we recognize, too, that we have a responsibility, a stewardship, that you've given us our lives. So, God, I pray that you would help us to make the right choices because our our choices reveal our hearts. And, God, if our choices are bad, God, if our hearts are bad, I pray, God, that you would give us new ones. God, if we're people that don't know you, I pray that you'll give us new hearts. And for those of us maybe who are just on a bad path, God, I pray that you would turn us around. Wherever the people in this church are, wherever these brothers and sisters are, God, I just pray that today, by your grace, we would start moving in a different direction, one that pleases you, one that honors you, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.